0: Workflow.
1: This is The Workflow Show, a podcast covering stories about media production technology. From planning to deployment to support and maintenance of secure media solutions, we cut through the hype in the media industry and bring a human touch to the discussion, which we call workflow therapy. I'm Jason Whetstone, Senior Workflow Engineer and Developer for Chesa. And I'm Ben Kilberg, Senior Solutions Architect at Chesapeake Systems. Ben and I had an opportunity to nerd out with some folks at Amazon Web Services, or AWS. Jack Wenzinger, Global Lead of Content Production, and Matt Herson, Principal Content Production Specialist, joined us on the podcast to tell a story of media content production in 2020 and beyond. So while many of us knew long ago that we were all eventually going to be using cloud technologies to get our work done, The COVID-19 pandemic and the challenges associated with it have accelerated that journey. Jack and Matt talk about a recent partnership with the Hollywood Professional Alliance, or HPA, which was dubbed Project Leaderhosen. This was an effort to bring together teams of creatives and technologists alike to solve the challenges of rapid media production in the age of remote work, with many of these team members in different regions of the globe working with the same content. But first, a reminder to subscribe to The Workflow Show, which will help you to know when we drop new episodes, and it also helps us know how many folks are listening. And if you have suggestions for guests or episode topics, tweet at The Workflow Show or on LinkedIn. You can also email workflowshow at chessa.com. All right, let's get to our discussion with Jack Wenzinger and Matt Herson. With us today, we have Jack Wenzinger, Global Lead of Content Production, and Matt Herson, Principal Content Production Specialist, both for for AWS. Thanks for joining us today, guys. We are going to be talking about Project Leaderhosen. Jack, why don't you get into uh, what that entailed and what that was all about and how it came about?
2: Sure. So uh, you have to go back. I've been in the industry for over 20 years where I had met, he goes by Jay-Z now. His name is uh, Jakim Zell. He's a content production specialist in the industry for a long time. IMDB resume that takes a couple of days to read. He's very German. And he came up to me about, uh, gosh, it was 2019, I think was the first project we did, and proposed that we do a making a movie in a day type project at the Hollywood Professional Association or HPA Tech Retreat, which for those that don't know, the HPA Tech Retreat is in Palm Springs, uh, normally around February every year, where the, the strongest technical executives from Hollywood and New York that cover broadcast and color and content production all kind of come together and you know talk serious technology and the changes that are happening in our industry. It's a it's a great great tech retreat. So anyways, Jay-Z was offering, hey, let's let's make a movie in a day. So we we started that project in 2019 and it was quite successful. So when the pandemic hit, he decided to raise the bar. You know, HPA was in March this last year, but this year I decided to make multiple creative projects kind of come together for the retreat, which involved cinematic shorts being created out of London, Dubai, Australia, Mexico City, we supported a virtual production project out of Los Angeles. We also had an animated short happen out of Mongolia. And my son even got involved and created a thematic video game that supported the the entire project. What was was great about this is we had some really great cinematographer uh, talent associated to these projects. So you know, we had like Sandra Da Silva out of Mexico City. Ruby Bell, who is famous for Mulan and Hidden Figures, she supported the project out of Australia. And we had Abir Abdullah out of Dubai, who has also done some great shorts. And then we had Bella Bayar, who is a uh, famous actress. She was also Miss Mongolia, but she was the one that coordinated the London and Mongolia activities. And then Barbara supported the virtual production project out of Los Angeles, and then Getty Wenzinger is the one that uh, worked on the Epic Games project as part of this, part of all of this. So you know it was great because we got to see all these technologies come together. And from AWS cloud perspective, it gives our you know it gives our engineers and solutions architects an opportunity to get with creatives and kind of get out of your wheelhouse. So as you know, on the technology side, we have kind of a language in which we talk about. Uh, technologies and it's usually in servers storage bandwidth database type language but when you're working with creatives they tend to talk in you know original camera negative in dailies and editorial and you know conform and and so bringing those languages together to work in the cloud and collaborate on a global scale is really an amazing project to bring these kinds of things together absolutely so you know essentially you know when we break it down you know we had multiple solutions architects supporting this Matt Herson was one of the leaders in our project Project and bringing it all together. And the, the neat thing for AWS is to be able to learn the language of the creatives, but also it gives us proof points to be able to bring together things like Content Lake, where we provide a repository in which all of these third-party providers can work together in the cloud and creatives are collaborating on a global scale. And it creates new problems for the industry, such as you know, what time zone are we gonna be working in? Because we have people that are remote from onset production. So we had people in Germany that were watching the onset activities happening in Mexico City, which was also doing editorial dailies down in Venezuela and they were doing their visual effects pipeline out of Montana. So which timeline are you going to coordinate on for these projects? And it made it really kind of exciting. So, you know, essentially we broke the project down into its components. We had multiple swim lanes for capture to cloud, We had the content lake component, which was architected by Matt Herson and Zach Wilner in controlling the third party interactivities on all of these projects and then you know we had the production services we had the vis- visual effects pipelines of which we had four discrete visual effects pipelines supporting the project and then of course we had the packaging globalization and delivery components of the project so it really was a script to screen activity which was performed in just a few months
1: wow yeah that's that's quite an accomplishment i would say <laughs> Well, Matt, let's talk about some of the tech a little bit. This sounds like a huge challenge, right? Yeah, especially when you start
3: working with people around the world, right? It's not just one area. We know we're all focusing on Los Angeles or New York City or Austin, where you you know you have tons of bandwidth, tons of technologists in that area, as well as really common connection paths. So when we start looking at this, uh, what I like to do is kind of take a little bit of an abstracted view from it. So I like starting with the content lake itself. So Jack described it as just the place where we put all of our assets and all the applications will come to that one source to gain access to it. To do that, we have to do user level control, right? It can't be open to the world. Uh, We have to make some pretty strict policies on that S3 bucket, as well as making sure we get into technologies like versioning, multi-factor delete. You know, we want to make sure we're logging all of these interactions. We want to make sure we're capturing who's connecting when, their I'm credentials and their roles, and as well as being able to do reflections of that, right? Building quick site dashboards to make sure that we can see it, it's logical, and there's nothing that's really standing out going, oh, hey, someone just pulled down four terabytes of data and they're a you know, someone that should be pl- placing data. <laughs> mm-hmm. So w- when we started going through this, we started just building up production meetings. And we said, who's on the project? What are their roles? How are we going to approach this? And we started getting a really interesting balance of, here's our core team of who's going to be on the project between all the different areas and all the different locations. And we went, okay, great. What access do they need? So let's just bring it down to the least privileged model. So, you know, going zero trust. I don't trust anybody until you tell me their explicit role. So from onset, we started getting, okay, there's going to be this person on this set, that person on that set, their, their credentials need to be where they can place and confirm assets into this data lake. Great. So we built an IAM role to be able to do puts and lists to make sure they can confirm their assets once they place them. And they're able to do that. And then as we grew, we started giving people more uh, access as they need it, gets, you know, and so on and lists to make sure that we're accessing it at the right way. But where it got really exciting is when we start getting direct service integration. So Colorfront was directly pulling from our bucket to do daily encodes, to do dailies out, as well as some finishing work, uh, making sure that the color and audio pipelines matched out at the end of the cycle. You know, Jack touched on editorial. We got to pull for editorial. Can't can't just magically sit there. So there's a lot of different areas we can really dive into. But you know, hopefully that frames up where, where we started, right?
1: Yeah, it kind of does. So, you know, where my brain always goes with this kind of stuff is what is the glue that holds all this stuff together? I mean, obviously, all backended by by services in AWS. But when we look at, you know, as, as an integrator, putting something together like this, it's always like, what is the back end? What's the workflow engine? What's the, you know, media asset manager? What What's all that? So I guess, you know, that that's that's kind of where my brain is going. Like, how did this all fit together? Yeah. Yeah, Or was it mostly bespoke? Did you guys sort of build it as you needed to?
3: So let me, I'm going to to actually pass this to Jack because it's really exciting because each one of these projects were completely separated in pipeline and activity and design. So Jack, I'll, I'll leave it to you to kind of talk about each one. Yeah, well, this is this is what I love about this project,
2: is it gives us an opportunity to show off the community of technology providers and partners that work on AWS as part of these projects. So, you know, even on Capture to Cloud, we had four very different Capture to Cloud scenarios as far as getting content into AWS. So Australia, we were working with Moxian. We also worked with IntuCore, which is the Video Village, you know, application, Qtake, which integrates with Moxian. And then they also integrate with uh, Arch Platform Technology. So you start to see what what I love about these projects is as we start bringing on partners and technology providers and talk to them about how how these projects are gonna come together, they start talking among themselves. And because they're on a common foundation of AWS, they find that it's pretty quick for them to figure out what that interface is going to look like. And then with the guidance of Matt Herson and Zach Wilner, you know, being able to enforce, you know, best practices and how they're going to interact. And then we were also able to help glue them together by using solutions like media exchange on AWS, which, you know, it's specifically designed for business to business content movement in a secure way, and then removing the underlying costs associated with it. So, It's kind of, it's really fun because you're starting with this, you know, with different languages as far as learning how the creatives talk, learning how the technology people talk. And then after you sit there for about 30 minutes, people start seeing the gaps that have kind of, that have, oh, I understand why people aren't using this now because they didn't understand what I meant. And so as they start having the conversations, everyone starts getting it. And it's amazing how fast those glue, you know, the glue components come together. And at the end of uh, the, you know, Moxian and Arch and Intacore, we were working flawlessly together within the project. And we saw the exact same thing happen with fifth kind working on, a, you know, on other parts of the project where they were also working with Colorfront and they were working with Blackmagic and they were working with... Uh, gosh, man, I'm, 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 I'm actually drawing a blank on some of these partner names <laughs> at the moment. I don't want to forget any of them because we had quite a few people that were participating and did a great job, but it's, it's fun to see it all kind of come together. And that's the capture to cloud part. VFX, We had four, you know, we had Bebop Technologies. We had Untold Studios working with Hot Spring, uh, which is another company out of India. We had Foundry Nuke running on all four of those VFX pipelines, but they were the underlying technology orchestrating it all. Eclipse Tech came to the table and was doing VFX. So we had being driven out of Wisconsin, out of Montana, out of London, out of India, all supporting these global projects. And it was just, you know, it was kind of seamless to us. We just looked at it as, you know, just, it was as close as the console keyboard console was on the keyboard.
0: So we started talking a little bit about the content lake there, the backing store for that, I assume would be S3 and everybody was just pushing into that and then distributing from there into the various other storage repositories. Is that right, guys? Yeah, so the content
3: lake is primarily based on Amazon's S3 offering, so Simple Storage Service, right? Our object offering. When we start moving into the different parts of the pipeline, there's there's a couple options. Most of the partners that we use in this project have direct S3 integration, so they can actually live read, cache, render, and output back to that content lake. So there's not a lot of movement required, but obviously there's some things that need to leave you know, you need POSIX level permissions, you need standardized protocols, SMB, NFS. And that's where we would shift it from the primary S3 repository to a localized file service, you know, FSX for Windows file server, or one of our other partner driven storage opportunities and really designs to make sure that we're hitting the the requirements, right? Because each one of these pipelines had different requirements. We had editorial, which is primarily based on Windows Workstation. So that was heavy SMB. We had VFX pipelines that were mixed, both Windows and Linux. And we had some opportunities to actually go full Linux with pipeline that was all NFS-based connectivity. So we actually had a wide variety. And then we went into our finishing pipeline. And this is really where we had some real fun experimenting. So we actually went to a Lustre-based file system that was backed by S3, where it actually automatically grabbed the files from S3, hydrated into a caching luster based file system, and was able to push over 12 gigabytes per second on a single host to do some color output on the finishing uh, workflow. So that's crazy speed for a single workstation, right? Like that's really hard to get consistently. And it, and it performed really well, which is really exciting. It's the first time we've been able to get to that level of both user interaction application efficiency and output efficiency in a seamless manner without having to do a ton of what i like to call nerd knob uh, you know twilling where you have to constantly just adjust every little setting
0: yeah let's dig into that just to hear more just because you said nor nerdy storage speed things and that's inherently interesting to me so lustre is a linux clustered file system and that was laying over top of what multiple s3 backstores so that you could write to all of them simultaneously so we actually have,
3: uh, Amazon has a managed FSX for Lustre file system. So you don't actually need to deploy EC2 and manage your MDTs and be able to create your all your provisioning and your caching tier versus your storage layer. It's already, uh, we deployed as a service, so you can create what's called a scratch volume. And the scratch volume can then be interlinked with your S3 bucket. It just needs permissions to be able to view the objects, be able to access them. And then you can actually create automated write back strategies as well. You can do it time-based, you can do it CLI-based. Even the Lambda functions can be triggered to write back to the primary bucket as a write through or a write around. So when we start looking at that, you're gonna create your Lustre file system, right? That's nothing new in the world, you create file systems. So based on your size, you're gonna get a bigger cache pool attached to it. So then your end client will need a Lustre-based driver. So great, we have a file system, we have a driver, we have an interconnect, that way we're able to access that and we're doing it all within the same local availability zone. We're using security groups to control access to the Lustre file system as well as the desktop client that you're connecting to. And we're making sure that in the inbound from externally, how do they connect and what protocols and what source ports and what IPs they're using? So we went with a lockdown procedure in that fashion as well, where they had to be using. And in this case, we used Teradigi. So PC over IP Ultra on a believe, Jack, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was a CentOS desktop. I'm almost positive it was CentOS S7. And then we would just basically use the NVIDIA driver. So it was a G4 workstation. So I believe it was an eight extra large. So it had a lot of power. It had a lot of network connectivity and we're able to do some pretty unique things. Cool.
0: So the Lustre file system, the storage it was using was what EBS or was that just the direct disk underneath of the um, virtual machines in the EC2 instances as part of the Lustre file system there?
3: Yeah, so you know, every instance on AWS has some form of disk underneath it, right? right. The workstation itself, they're running EBS, it was GP2. And that way we really built out a huge volume for them to be able to work with and we Got maximized it. EBS throughput on that instance. But on the luster side, because it's a managed service, you don't have to worry about what type of volume, how many instances to deploy, what caching level should I do? All you do is click what the size you want is provision throughput and then go. And then it will automatically spin that up for you. And then it will just be available as a mount. So it's really nice. That way, you don't have to worry about managing a file system. You can just worry about doing the luster-based activities, which is creating MDTs. So you're going to say, I want to performance optimize my luster file system. And that's creating those stripe groups that say, okay, great. Anything from 1 meg to 10 megs great that's 1 MDT and 1 gig to 100 gigs that's another because I know I have very disparate file types mm-hmm. and I want to optimize for that usage
0: Got it good to know
3: Matt which scenarios did uh, was that used on
2: was that for the Autodesk conform
3: it
0: was. So it was the conform
3: uh, and the uh, some color pipeline as well with new. So the Autodesk
2: Flame implementation was was pretty interesting because it was a, they had some issues with the Dubai setup. They were planning on doing some things on-prem, ran into some concerns, and Barry Ghosh, who was a uh, one of the Hollywood editors that was, participating in the project, uh, got together with Autodesk and asked if we could move the project over to our Los Angeles local zones. Local zones is a version of our regions that is essentially, it it has less resiliency as a region. Region has multiple data centers, but it's essentially, you know, full data center infrastructure, but it's designed for extremely low latency uh, workloads. So perfect for Hollywood type production workflows. And that's the the main reason that Los Angeles was, was likely the first place to Receive a local zone, but yeah, we turned that up. I I think we were asked on a Friday. We had everything up and running on a Sunday, by Sunday I should say, and we're able to keep that project moving through their you know through their crisis deadline.
3: And what's great is since we're using data lakes, it's easy to get these assets. It, it's not a heavy lift. It's not a heavy move, and to spin up local zones they're already existent today, right? We have Los Angeles, we have Atlanta, there's a ton coming, there's there's ones all around the United States and North America. So the idea is just getting to as close to the user as possible Mm. to reduce any form of latency. So their interactivity is seamless. Because we all know, right, if we take a step back and we go, okay, latency is the killer of all fun. That's kind of the joke, right? When you go to 30, 40, 100 milliseconds, your user experience is gonna be pretty poor. Mm -hmm. Opposed to, you know, eight to 10 to 15 to 20, it's pretty usable. It's almost as if you're directly attached to that computerized instance or, you know, input Mm -hmm. device where you really don't have to worry about any type of crazy jitter and and weird input.
0: So, That's a great, that's a great point. So in terms of, you know, VDI to virtual desktop interfaces, people are, you know, editing in the cloud, they're doing all sorts of cool things. Coast to coast latency can be widely variable. What I've generally thought of is underneath a hundred, you'll kind of, you know, get away with it. But above that, it starts to get really frustrating. What are you guys seeing generally in and around? Like what, creatives you know at the top of their game are willing to put up with
2: so th- this is two points so there's first it's overcoming the fear of change
0: because
2: <laughs> all creatives get fud fear uncertainty and doubt at the beginning of the of the suggestion that there's not going to be a cheese grater hugging their leg <laughs> or warming their leg as they're doing their work but you know, Matt Herson, he's going to speak to you as far as the performance expectations because he's he's done a lot of research in this space. But once we get them over that and we make sure that we've characterized the network and performance capabilities, honestly, when they come out of this
3: project, they become our best evangelists.
2: Matt, do you want to go into the, the technical components
3: with us? Yeah, I do. I mean, one thing that I really like that you hit on, Jack, was fear of change. You know, everyone has an editorial workstation today that they touch, feel, interact with, and it works. And to say that I'm going to do something new and they have a project deadline, that's a very scary thing, right? You're you're messing with people's livelihoods, reputations, money, like these are major impactful pieces, but understanding that there's maybe a different, maybe better, maybe more unique way of going about it really changed the availability. Plus with, you know, this will air at some point, I'm sure. Global shortages happen. Mm-hmm. We went through a huge shortage with our semiconductor manufacturing. By our, I mean, just the US, <laughs> the world, the earth, planet earth manufacturing kind of had a huge problem where GPUs were impacted, CPUs, cars, you know, really anything that takes microchips were impacted. So then you go, okay, great. I have a new show. I have aged out hardware and I need, to, I need 20 new workstations. Good luck. I I can't get them. I'm still trying to get some video cards from a year ago that are under $2,000. At least they should be. So, all right, (laughs) that's a long-winded way of of diving into this. So, you know, there's a lot of streaming technologies out there. And in this project, we use a couple of different ones. We use both Teradici, PC over IP Ultra, which is really a, a huge streaming protocol provider that's been around for quite some time. Amazon also has a a service or a product that you can use called Nice DCV, which is another streaming protocol provider. So you start seeing some kind of confusion, I would say in the marketplace, because there's also Parsec that came into be, there's VNC from back in the day, there's remote desktop, RGS, like I, I could name a hundred, but it doesn't help add any clarity to this conversation. So what I would say is, when we start going through interactivity, you know, one thing that we hit on was latency. And you're talking about coast to coast latency. We want the workstation to be as close to the end user as as physically possible. And this is really the paradigm of just because you shot in the Mojave desert doesn't mean you need to do your production there. You can have talent in other locations. So you can have talent in Montreal, talent in Los Angeles, anywhere. And you want to bring the workstation as close to those users as possible. Mm -hmm. Because when you have Wacom tablets or input devices or scrub pads or anything those devices need to be connected too. and when you start having input you need to remove input latency otherwise your editor who is the award winning editor is going to go this is untenable and I'm not doing it (laughs) right Mm -hmm. so latency markers. What's good? What's, what's good enough? From our experience on both this uh, Lederhosen project and previous HPA projects and working with customers across our industry, we found that under about 27 milliseconds is pretty seamless to, to 99% of users where they feel as though they're in front of that device. When you start getting into the 30 plus millisecond, you start noticing input latency. And that's really sensitive to artists, to editors, where they need to constantly rescrub timelines double click on elements and go, hey, I'm clicking, it's not playing. We have a problem. <laughs> or, you know, I'm running a audio board and I'm changing the level and the level input range is wrong. So now I need to remaster. Like that, that's a huge stopping factor, right?
0: For sure. Got it. So the secret is as close as you can be, be that close.
3: Yep. Bring the instance, bring, bring that virtual workstation as close to the end user as possible. The other magic sauce I would throw on top is, Build your AMI or your really Amazon machine image, you know, that, that connection source to be specific to that type of user. Don't just make a generic one that launches and then go, okay, great, go install your software, have a great day. No, pre-install, have the licenses ready, make sure that they're able to get in and start working. Have group policy objects, map those drives, have scripts on boot to get to where you need to be. Bring profile settings across because guess what? The last thing I want to do and and I'm editing a a, a previous recording right now is go, oh, where's my plugin directory? Where's my fonts? Where's all my interlink? Where's my where's my effects catalog? I don't have time to look for all this. Like I need it now. Like I don't want to spend a half an hour setting it up.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's like hot rods or sports cars, they're finely tuned for the jobs, right? And then if you're going to say, I'm going to take away your cheese grater, aka your fancy silver hot rod that's sitting underneath your desk that you spent hours and hours customizing to your unique specifications, and then you say, here's a magic one from the sky, people are going to go, um, FUD, FUD you, man. So, yeah.
1: I guess it boils down to, you know, thinking of these, of these workstations as, as a tool rather than as an extension of your personality. Mm-hmm. I kind of look at the automotive industry that way, frankly. It's like, the, the you know, the automobile is a tool to get me from here to there. It's not an extension of my personality. That's just me. I mean, there are a lot of people out there that, you know, that they're really into, you know, automobiles. But that seems like it's kind of on the along the lines of this discussion. I know um, when I first started learning about cloud technology, I remember the uh, solutions architect saying, don't treat your instances like they're pets. You know, they're just, you, you spin them up and, and you throw them away when they're, when they're done.
3: If your servers have Star Trek names, there's a problem. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that, that brings up a really, a really profound point, especially as we move towards the future, right? Like I'll be candid. I have two kids you know, I care about where they're going to be when they grow up and how the world's going to exist. I know Jack Mm -hmm. has, everyone has a family. So moving into, you know, sustaining, you know, that's a huge impact, making sure we reduce the amount of waste that comes into play. So, you know, Amazon's taking a strong stance on green energy. So making sure that we're using power that's self-generated, that makes an impact because guess what, at home, you probably don't want your power bill to be in the hundreds or thousands of dollars, you know, all these machines eat up a lot of power. There are a lot of electronics. There's a lot of waste that goes in. So what happens if I just say, guess what? I have this little box you can run on your desktop. It's called a thin client. It's been around since I, I want to say the 60s, thinking about my old AS400 IBM series days and go, guess what? You don't need anything really local because you're doing it all remote. And at the end of the day, you have a byproduct of security put into place too. It's kind of hard to walk away with a hard drive full of stuff if you don't have it, right? Mm-hmm. That, that makes a huge differentiation, especially in content security space and, and that zero trust model.
0: For sure.
2: And there's certainly a lot of technology partners and, and providers out there that are trying to take advantage of the space. You know, when we first did the, the first leaderhosen project, it was Bebop Technology. They came forward and they were the only ones supporting the project. This time it was Bebop, it was Arch Platform, Eclipse Tech, and Untold Studios. And, and they were bringing new ideas to the table, such as Untold Studios has typically been more of a service provider, but this time they had partnered with Hot Spring to provide commodity-based VFX resources to support the project. So they were providing the underlying infrastructure and actually partnered with somebody else to provide the human resource work on the VFX project. So you know, it's, it's interesting how the business is changing and it's becoming easier to use. Um, I was talking to an executive, I actually was talking to the CTO of um, Eclipse Tech just yesterday, Jeff Ullman, he was talking about the, the way he now receives visual effects projects. And it's, He gets calls, he looks at the project, and they provide him with a URL to connect into the platform to do the work. So we know that studios and and productions are adopting these centralized cloud content architectures where people can go to the content, the workstation is there with content hydrated, and they can start to work where the content
1: is. That sounds fantastic. I mean... I know just working in the in the capacity that I do, sometimes doing the work is the easiest part. <laughs> you know, it it's the getting into the environment, you know, getting everything set up to where you need it, making sure you have the right VPN credentials for example, you know, all that kind of stuff can be a real pain and it and it can be a blocker to actually getting the work done, especially if you run into any problems along that train and you know, that that could be enough to just halt your progress. Yeah, I'm definitely on board with this style of working.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean just one thing that we haven't really talked about, and I think it's kind of an interesting transition is, you know, what tools can you use to move your data around, right? You know, it's, yeah. to it, get hands on to launch the workstations, get S3 running, right? Like those are, those are potentially easy things. But then when you start going through going, okay, great. We shot in Dubai, we're ready to edit. I don't know the CLI. What do I do? <laughs> that was, that was kind of a fun conversation of going, okay. So we have a couple options. One. Do we have you know, an integrator or a partner kind of walk them through how to do it and do that manually for them? Do you script automation? And this is really one of our partners that came to the table, which was IMT Soda. It actually came out to be a pretty successful use case that I, it was kind of new to, to our space, at least, was data management at a very simplistic GUI layer. So for instance, they went into IMT's Soda platform, which was locally run in that account. And they went, okay, great. I'm ready to start editing. I need to do my Dubai shot 100, 102, 105, 105A. So they could actually go in, GUI, click on what they needed and say, here's the transfer. Here's where I need to go. Here's my uh, FSX for Windows file server. That's what I'm going to edit on. I have a couple of editors waiting. Let's go. And you can click the job. But what I really liked about it was you can click estimate it will actually estimate the cost of the data movement, the cost projection of the storage, as well as the lifecycle management of that data. So it actually was a pretty easy tool for an AC or someone that's like an assistant editor to be able to do their orchestration for edit base and click go. So it's a really nice feature to do that. And it's bi-directional, right? You can load out, you can load back in, you can do your data shifting, which is pretty helpful because you never want a one-way street because then you always say, hey, I need to go back home. How do I get home?
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I believe there's even an estimation of time, the time that it's going to take to complete the transfer.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So it, there's an estimation of cost and time. I really like the archival side of it as well, where I could mm-hmm. do projections of how much your storage is you. If you moved into archive, what's the projected timeline, cost savings in that perspective. And, you know, when you start going into archiving, you have items like Amazon S3 Glacier, Amazon S3 Glacier Deep Archive, which are, are very affordable tiers to store data for very long periods of time. But you know, being candid, right? The, the point of this show is to get a little deeper. You know, the recall methodology, it's not a simple get. You can't just yeah. get on that storage class. You actually need to get a call to recover, restore that asset and set parameters for that restore, whether you're doing expedited retrieval units, standard recovery bulk recovery, and there's timelines associated. So having a system to translate that to say, okay, I don't know what any of that means. I, I just need to edit the project. I need all the assets in one hour and I need it live in an hour. Well, that translates to I need the assets recovered in 30 minutes. I need it loaded to that system and I need my editor in place in 45 minutes to start reviewing to be that hour. So that's when you can make a decision tree, right? So do you go through provision recovery unit, 15 minutes. Here's your assets, go. And then the next job, move it to that file system, go. And then you got your editor connecting in via their streaming protocol of choice. And they go, awesome. I'm connected. I can do my work now. It it reduces a lot of that friction that you'd normally have where you need IT resources to go, okay, CLI copy, CLI command, CLI, right? Job check, job status check.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and for our listeners, um, what Matt mentioned there, that's something that I think a lot of folks are considering now. You know, they want to get off of LTO, uh, maybe, maybe an on-prem LTO and move it to a cloud archive. It it isn't always as simple as just shove everything into S3 and then you can get it back whenever you want it. When we go to these archive tiers in, in the cloud platforms, uh, like Matt said, like LTO, there is this idea of you've got to wait a little while to get that content back. And I can't necessarily tell you exactly how long it's going to be. So when we look at automating those, there's a little bit of complexity just just to throw it out there, a little bit of complexity that goes into the automation of mainly the restore. The archive is, is easy. It's, it's the restore, which is what everybody cares about. How do I get this stuff back? I think archive is always going to be uh, one of these things that we know we need to do. And we're always a little kind of like, well, uh, we try to dispel the uncertainty as much as we can.
2: Yeah. As Matt will tell you, archive was a trigger word for me yeah. <laughs> after spending uh, <laughs> what, decades focused in that particular space. It's one of the reasons that I worked with some, other, with some folks here in AWS to create media to cloud, which is a quick start solution, which aggregates content and allows you to test machine learning services to augment the metadata data against those assets as you put them under management, in the cloud uh, migrating from an existing archive. But, you know, as you guys know, those on-prem archives of LTOs, there's, there's a huge chunk of that, you know, someone will tell you they have a 50 petabyte archive. But in reality, probably 20 petabytes they would throw away if they could. You can't delete. And they Mm -hmm. probably don't have visibility to another few petabytes because they just have poor metadata. The metadata is atrophied over time, you know, where they're just moving it from one tape to another. So, you know, you really have an opportunity when you move your content into AWS to test and augment the metadata and, and address that metadata atrophy to where you can find and search and really have control of your content. So it is something that, you know, should be considered as they move to the cloud. Oh, that's
1: a really good point, Jack. It's it's something that I, I think you're right. Not too many people think about it because Archive is kind of, as I'm sure you know, out of sight, out we of have mind. have to do this thing. And, you know, we do it because everybody says we have to and, you know, we might need it someday. And it it's always when we do. That's always the the mad rush and the scramble, you know. <laughs> hmm
3: Yeah. So I like what Jack's, you know, kind of touching on right there. We have media to cloud, media insights engine, and these are frameworks that exist, you know, quick starts that exist today that you can launch and start getting richer metadata based on your assets that you already have or that you've already made. So you can automatically bring them in via this quick start and it actually does the archival step for you. What I really like about this is that it gives you a chance to view your metadata Catalog it, database it in a quick, referenceable way that you can pull into your MAMs, PAMs, and DAMs that you need. to Get richer insight. So a lot of metadata previously created didn't have things like celebrity detection, keywords being said. You know, even recognition of objects. Sometimes that's really important. You know, you start going through and you're like, oh, I really wish I had something. And I'm totally throwing this arbitrarily. Of, you know, Flintstones ish rock walls, and you can just start searching these elements and go, oh, hey, look in my catalog. I have a million assets and I can actually internally curate and bring to the table without having to go reshoot or build or buy.
2: But the most important thing is test. Don't just turn on machine learning services and bring in the archive yeah. you want to test because you don't want you don't want it to bring in an entire archive of b-roll footage and run you know run speech speech to text and there's no speech
1: right, right. <laughs>
3: yeah so qualitatively Track your data, make sure you get what you need opposed to what you want, because there's costs associated with all this, right? Each one of these right. machine learning services and APIs generates a cost, so you want to be efficient with it, especially if it's B-roll that you'll, you most likely won't ever touch again. Maybe just a quick celebrity detection is enough, maybe some time object or just standard cataloging, you know, name uh, confirmation, just things like that is really important. But on the archive space, what I find to be really interesting, and i've I've played in there for quite some time is moving away from proprietary tape formats, LTFS, proprietary you know cartridges, you have to worry about things like how long is it good for, how many reads, how many hours of operation, storage capacity, as well as storage temperature. Turns out, if it gets really hot. Tapes are not a big fan of that. <laughs> Who knew? There was old tapes that would actually catch fire, but moving them into an object space, having the media directly referenceable without having to read back an entire tape really changes the, the access pattern as well. It can be a lot more advantageous opposed to going, oh, I need to pull from this tape for this asset, that tape for that asset. Oh, my robot's full. All, all my bays are full. You can actually move away and just say, here are the assets I need. Let me just pull them and I don't have to worry about any of the logistics in between.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. That's a really great point, Matt. Where are you guys seeing people tiering primarily and the data access patterns? Are people using you know, infrequent S3 more than they're using Glacier? Or are they using both? And then Glacier is just kind of the, oh, crap. And if I really need to grab it, I will from Glacier. I'm just curious about the access pattern of the typical m and cloud adopter.
2: It depends on the type, of the customer use case. Sure. sure. In m and news is obviously going to be different than a production studio. Or it's production, um, yeah. So news mm-hmm. clearly, clearly needs to have certain assets at the ready In case something happens, you know, when Michael Jackson passed away, obviously everyone was in a rush to get to their assets. If they would have been in deep glacier, it would have been difficult. So this is where infrequent access becomes very ideal for news agencies so that they can keep assets at the ready in a lower cost uh, provisioning tier where they can afford to lose those assets. You know, there's an element of risk there. But even so, they can restore from Deep Glacier and rebuild those assets at any time. So it's not a replacement of an archive. It's simply, you know, a redundancy that they keep in place to run their business. But you you really have to think about what is the use case and what is the archive. There is no one archive.
0: Yeah. Right. You're
2: talking to a studio. There is the uncolorized master archive. There's the colorized master archive. There's the service master archive. There's the marketing and promo archive. Right. And Matt will probably tell me, i tell you that I'm missing three or four others, (laughs) you know, but essentially that's how we go in. It's, it's kind of a consultative conversation with each, with each of the M&E customers to say, what is your business use case? And then we would help tailor it to their usage.
1: Yeah, it's exactly like what Chesa does for our clients. You know, what what's the best, ma'am, out there? Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, what kind of work are you doing today? You guys,
2: you guys are not going to go out of business because that consultative experience yeah. is absolutely critical for ME customers to rely upon. You're the Sherpa that helps people climb the hill. Yep. You've done it multiple times, and that's that's really key to the success of customers.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about something that just came up yesterday for me where a client was looking to render some things a little bit faster with Media Encoder in their day-to-day work. And being able to be like, oh, our friend's helmet might be able to help with that, right? Just knowing that this cool German company exists. That other people might not know, like, oh, we've got to build this thing from scratch. Well, no, somebody did that and they're in Germany, and we can put you in touch with them because they're awesome. Right. And that might solve your problem.
3: Yeah. Having having that breadth of experience and you know, seeing the use cases, being able to do post mortems internally on them as well, seeing where they were successful, where you know things have changed, as well as influencing companies' roadmaps, right? You know, if you're seeing consistent yeah. apps, you're gonna bring that to your your partners and your customers saying, hey here's where we're missing the mark. How do we fix that? And obviously you're very well respected in the industry to say, okay, these are not just random opinions. They're based on, you know, data, it's data driven decisions. Here's what we're bringing to the table. And and it's really great to see that level of outcome.
2: If I can, bring us around full circle. This is exactly why I love working on these Leaderhosen projects with the HPA because it gives us an opportunity to work on all the technologies from script all the way to presentation in a CMS. It gives customers an opportunity to see what is the art of possible Mm. in AWS. And we can dive into any of the specific technologies. You notice how we dived right into archive and policy care questions, and then went right over into VFX rendering as just another thing. But we could have talked about editorial. We could talk about conform. We could talk about globalization. We had fifth kind interfaced with IUNO. Uh, it was actually SDI Media at the time. They were still doing the acquisition, but they were interfaced also with uh, Own Zones, which I think they've changed their name to Atelier for IMF packaging, but all of those components were part of this community of of partners and technology providers that were put together to support this thought leadership project for the HPA. And it gives people a chance to go, you know, I have a hundred things that are involved in my workload in which to, to run my studio, but I have 10 key problems and it gives them an opportunity to actually dive into those specific areas and help open the conversation up to solve the problems yeah
1: that's great another
3: really fun thing along this path is touching new technology brand new out of the box it could it could go really great or it could explode in your hands right <laughs> it's being able to to mess with these new technologies in an area where risk is acceptable because right. this is a internal program and it brings lessons learned out to the marketplace here's what was successful here's what wasn't and you see that in you know the virtual production space you know it's become. It's booming everywhere. Everyone's talking about Mandalorian and how they did it. How do we, how do we do that? You know, there's other shoots and movies going on every day. You know, how do we take care of previs? How do we take care of our versioning? What do we do about our metadata and everyone meta meta verse and meta everything. It's like the hottest term on the planet that if I had a Ferrari, I'd probably just name it the Meta car.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or go hide in the woods for a few months. (laughs) Yeah. That's
0: been fascinating that how quickly our science fiction upbringing has become our day-to-day present. I mean, I don't think we're 100% there yet, but, you know, Jack, you talk about the art of the possible and, you know, the fact that we can spin up all of these services on demand and immediately access them so long as we have the pipes out of wherever we might be that are fast enough to provide decent access to get what we might've shot up and into the cloud. And then it's really a playground after that, which is you know, amazing.
2: And you see, you see, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that you have these creatives and architects working together and I'll give you a few examples. I would talk, we would talk to Jay-Z about, yes, we're going to work with these partners and bring this stuff into a content lake. And Jay-Z would look at me and is it a cloud? Is it a lake? Uh, what, <laughs> and so right. and we would get into conversations about what, you know, we'd have people that were saying OCN and OCF. We also had camera raw, you know, was another conversation. And then other people were saying, well, I'm capturing, you know, I'm capturing in V RAW, you know, 6K or 8K or even 12K was part of the sequences. Then we had other people saying, Well, yeah, I, I need to get DPX sequences because we're we're gonna be working over on VFX over here. Bringing all of those languages together where the IT guy goes, got it. That means this much storage to me and this much bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And where the creative knows, oh, I'm going to get what I expect visually and with the right color depth when I'm doing my review process. So that everybody is kind of, you know, going through that Rosetta Stone and understanding the languages of each other. That, you know, that's absolutely critical in these projects.
0: Yep, yeah, that that still takes human know-how and ingenuity
1: there for sure. Yeah, there's definitely a human touch to that.
2: <laughs> yeah, the, the one piece that that it kind of came to light was. We had the distribution side, which is at the very end of this project. Uh, Raul Vicioni had worked with Dolby. He'd worked with Bitmovin and Aceto to build out that end packaging CMS platform for the project. He was also working with Altelier, and he was going to the creatives asking for, so this is the HDR version I need. Here is the encoding spec, and the creatives would just stare at him. <laughs> Because they were at different parts of the ecosystem or, you know, the workload that had never really talked together before. But it raises good questions of, well, why don't we have an easy button for publishing to, you know, these endpoints towards the beginning, coming out of editorial and mastering in part of the project? Maybe that's an area that we could develop to make that simpler for creatives to distribute content. So it raises those kinds of debates and questions, not saying that we have the answers yet, but you know, it gets us to
3: where we can start to innovate in this space. Yep. You know, it it kind of reminds me of localization, especially since we're working in multiple countries and, and a whole slew of languages, there was a really big push for localization of at least translation of content much earlier in the production style So it really changed the idea of, okay, great. We're shooting in, I think it was, I want to say five or six different countries. We have at least five different languages and we needed a commonality and commonality for most was English. So we actually had to bring in machine learning services early into the daily stake to be able to do that translation, reflection of script translation. Are we going the right path? Did we deviate? Did we get the shots we need? And all of this was really coordinated via both media insights engine which is a quick start that we had also our partners were really involved in building solutions on the space gray meta was a huge one that kind of came in to play with you know machine learning services to be able to do that translation layer but it all needed to be coordinated and this is where really the information came together was in fifth kind and moxian and frame io because not only did you have all these assets you had to manage you had workflow methodologies you had to do and then finally you had to have to review and approve and notation systems along the way to make sure you're getting the cuts you need. Otherwise you go, oh, hey, by the way, you know, that gear that we rented or borrowed or were given, you know, 12K cameras. Turns out they're very expensive to get back. <laughs> so <laughs> we need to, we have a limited shoot time. And we need to get everything we need to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Let's talk about cost a little bit. Mainly just to say, I feel like costing out an AWS solution could be a full-time job. <laughs> <laughs> And it often is for some people. (laughs) Um, And that's not a dig or anything. That's just, that's more just like, this is the way it kind of is, (laughs) you know, because, uh, you know, there's such a breadth of services there. And it's the kind of thing where you could potentially be paying more for a particular event, but then less over the course of most of the time that you're using these services. It's really pretty, pretty astonishingly cool take a sports team or a sports organization, for example, that might be recording a game or something like that. They might be doing really heavy, heavy production during a weekend just during specific times of the year and and paying for bandwidth and storage and all kinds of stuff that they're just going to be using during that production space time. And then it, it you know, could be shuffled into archive, pulled down locally. You know, there's there's many different ways that it could go, but your usage is kind of flexing up and down based on what you're doing. So you know that's great. That's really cool. In, this, in the case of these projects, you know they're only costing when they're in production, right? Or when they're being used. So I think that's you know a great thing to just just to to, to realize.
2: Yeah, so I'll comment a little bit. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of the benefits of the cloud, right, is the pay-per-use model. But it also offers some complexity when when you're managing over 200 AWS services. Of course, not every customer is using all of them. But on these projects, we typically invest in the industry by running them, you know, in our SA accounts which gives us visibility to the costs that are associated to these projects and helps us characterize that for customers and advise as, as it grows. But we're also it also gives us an opportunity to promote certain services that reduce costs for customers. I had mentioned earlier Media Exchange uh, on AWS. That one is specifically designed to remove the egress fees. And since it uses our storage backplane, it never leaves the storage technology component. So, you know, as you know, when B2B transfers happen, whoever is receiving the content will will need to rehydrate the content. They'll do a QC, they do all the spot checks, they have to do, they'll do the fixity checking, they want to make sure that everything is exactly, you know, as transferred. But within the media exchange on AWS that does not need to happen because it's right. not leaving the same storage medium that it's always mm-hmm. been in. And it's not changing to a different accelerated transfer technology. It's using our backbone. So customers are confident in the fact that that content that moved from one location to another is exactly the same content that was sent from the source. Yep, Matt, you want to add any color to that?
0: Yeah, I,
3: I kind of look at costs in a, in a really unusual way for most, I guess. I really like taking a step back and saying, okay, what are you trying to accomplish? What, what's your goal? Are you yeah. trying to run editorial workstations? What's your workstations you have today? I like looking at it from that perspective and then kind of working backwards back to a- the AWS cost brackets. Let's be honest, it, it, there's a you know 250 plus services. There's so much to look into. Do they all apply? Probably not for most of these use cases. So, you know, partners like, like Chester really bring value to be able to say, hey, we've done this a whole bunch of times. We have profiles created for costs. We can tell you estimations. Yeah. And there's obviously ways of, of adjusting that based on, you know, the individual needs. But when we start thinking about it, it really comes down to a couple core costs we're thinking about in, in these use cases where it's going to be compute, storage and transfer, like those are going to be the big pieces that you're going to be looking at as you go through this transformation of the editorial and color pipelines. It makes a lot of sense. So there's even optimizations within those pipelines to help you reduce your cost. We have something called spot instances, which are on demand bidded for lower price. If you have rendering, there's also reserve instances where you're committing to a longer term for that at a lower cost. You know, there's optimization just right there. There's savings plans, there's so many things, but what really comes to play as the biggest advantage is make sure you're optimizing your workflow. And when I say that, I'm saying, you know, if, you're not, if you don't have people working for eight hours a day, turn off those instances. They don't need to be running 24 seven, be efficient. You know, if you're storing data, stored efficiently. Doesn't need to be an object. Doesn't need to be in file. Make sure you're aligning this correctly and get rid of duplicates and triplicates of data for no reason other than just, Hey, we've done that in the past. It makes us feel good. So to say. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say, and so a couple of things I'm picking up here. Number one, uh, Jack, you mentioned that you'll, you guys will typically sort of POC some of these types of efforts. On your own team, so I hear that that's a great way to sort of baseline. Okay, here's here's an idea of what the cost is going to be based on our POC. Now your cost may go up or down based on, you know, some efficiencies we might find or some you know unexpected, whatever. <laughs> but that's a great way to baseline. The other thing. Is just Matt. What I hear you saying is shifting the thinking a little bit about when we have an on-prem server or on-prem you know s- storage pool, we we put our files there and we forget about them. And maybe changing our thinking about that a little bit. Wh- where is it most efficient to keep this data? Is it more efficient to keep the server up and running all the time, or do we do we shut it down when we're done with it? It strikes me as that you know the analogy that I would use is driving an electric car. I I drive an electric car. I've been driving one for about three and a half years. I had to completely change my thinking about how I got from point A to point B. I, I mentioned, you know, I think of my car as a tool. I, I really do. But, you know, a tool could be a screwdriver or a hammer, you know. <laughs> You're thinking about then which route am I going to take? Am I going to get on the highway or am I going to take the back roads? And, you know, that, that all figures in. Is it going to be a three-hour trip or a five-hour trip based on where I have to charge on the way? You know, that, that kind of stuff. So it's really a matter of changing your thinking you know, one of the benefits to driving an electric car is that it's really cheap to drive. It, it really is. I mean, I was going to Baltimore every day from state line, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and I think my electric bill went up about $30 a month. I mean, I used to have to, to spend 50 or so dollars a week in fuel when I was driving a diesel, very efficient, you know, diesel. And I, I was spending 50 bucks a week to, to go back and forth to the office. My electric bill went up $30 driving just, just the same amount in a month. So there's a benefit. Another benefit, you know, zero emissions from the tailpipe, because there is no tailpipe. Another benefit, no maintenance, like barely any maintenance costs. So, you know, there, there are benefits here, but it does require a little bit of changing of thinking about the way you're going about doing your work and, you know, where, where your data is moving. Let's just say.
3: Yeah, Jason. So I I really like that analogy. And one extra piece of that would be, you don't have to change it all today. You know, if you need to move fast, you can move fast. You can always iterate as you move too. you are never locked in you know like a traditional you know nas you spend you know let's say i'm buying some crazy petabyte storage i'm going to spend a million dollars and i need to capitalize on that i have to keep it for x amount of years because i have you know uh, double decline balance and write-offs and taxes and all this other crazy stuff so you have all those componentry where you're you're really bid into something with moving to AWS and really a lot of cloud vendors in this case, just being candid, you know, you can dive into technology, you can grow as you need it. And if you hit a certain point where you go, you know what, there's a better way, then change. The whole idea is there to be able to be iterative, to move quickly. You know, we have a, we have a, a saying internally that it's best to fail fast, right? Go through, experiment, try And If it doesn't work, change. You, you really, the only one that's holding you back is yourself. You really have the opportunity to change however, whenever you want. And then as we launch new services, maybe there's a more advertising service that fits that exact need, or maybe there's price reductions like we've done. We've had over 74 price reductions on most services. It gets more efficient over time as well. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and this is, this is exactly where you know, Chesapeake comes into play, because you have you know, things like the cloud adoption framework, which are designed to make sure that customers are not just thinking, okay, so if I move my storage from on-prem to cloud, then let's just do that, and, and you tell the IT guy to go ahead and make that change we have frameworks and there's uh, SIs that can come in and help customers think about, okay, so what is the operational impact? What's the security impact? What's the HR impact? How does finance change, you know, as we think about moving to the cloud and to make sure that all, you know, all of these different organizations are involved in the decision process. And they realize that it's not going to be the same, that there are changes and that, you know, the changes are for the better, you know, you're not going to have a big, Exodus of resources because you're moving to the cloud and the guy says, I only wanted to manage on-prem NAS. (laughs) He now sees a huge opportunity because now there's training in cloud services and he can learn new skills. There's a lot of opportunities here, but you have to make sure that you're having the conversation with each of the different groups. And you guys know this better than anyone else. I'm sure you do workshops like this for your customers all the time.
1: Yeah, we do. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap today, guys. Thank you, Jack Wensinger from AWS and also from AWS, Matt. Herson.
3: Thank
2: you.
1: Thanks for joining us today.
3: Awesome. Thanks for having us.
1: Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. The Workflow Show is a production of Chessa and More Banana Productions. Original music is created and produced by Ben Kilberg. Please subscribe to The Workflow Show and shout out to us at Chessa.com or at The Workflow Show on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Whetstone.
0: Workflow Show.